All right, Genesis chapter 3. We are going to be reading through the entire chapter. So if you don't have a Bible, you're going to get lost physically and spiritually this morning. Why don't you pick up a Bible? If you don't have one with you, there should be a paperback Bible in the pew back in front of you. And we love God's Word here at Westside. Amen? Amen. So if you love God's Word, we've been doing this lately, um, we would like to stand for the reading of the text this morning. Stand if you are able to read, uh, to follow along as God's Word is read aloud. We will be reading the entirety of chapter 3 upon the conclusion of the reading of the text. I will say this is the Word of the Lord, and because we are thankful to God for His Word this morning, you can respond with, thanks be to God. Have your eyes on Scripture, guys. Follow along. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. My voice is not as cool as his. And so you're just kind of stuck with that today, right? Guy could read the phone book and someone would get saved, you know? 
Hey, we are in our sermon series entitled Break It Down, and what we are doing is we are breaking down the aspects of what is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And um, we started this last week and kicked it off, and so if you weren't here, you can go to our website and sort of pick up on those. And um, if I could set us up for where we're going today, maybe this would be a little bit helpful. Um, Back when I was in high school, I had the privilege of being in the theater department, and I landed one of the lead roles in the high school musical, as a Broadway musical that we did in high school called 42nd Street. And so um, I was cast as Andy Lee, the tap dance director. And the reason why is because I can't sing a lick, but I'm a white boy who can dance, okay, right? And so they were like, I guess we'll just give it to him, you know? And so we had actually a professional tap dancer come in and teach us and do all of this. And man, if you've ever been involved in a play or a musical or anything, you just rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. And then when you think you've rehearsed more, you rehearse more and do all of that. And one night at rehearsal, I was kind of tired of doing the same old thing. And so we were doing a uh, tap dance routine, and we were all in unison. And I thought, you know, I'm going to spice this thing up a little bit. And so I broke away from the rest of the pack, and I thought, Usher, you know, know, I'll do a little move here or something, right? And so I kind of broke away from the pack, added a little bit of stuff into it. And I will never forget this moment. Miss Holmes was our choir director and the musical director at the time. And she had one of those big cups, like Lambert's cups, that has like five gallons of Diet Coke in it, right? Just a giant straw and all that stuff. And I'll never forget, she was always up front in the orchestra pit where the piano was. And she saw what I did, and she didn't kind of do anything right off the bat. And I was like, she's feeling it, all right? Like, we're doing this, and then I saw that cup come down, and just Diet Coke went everywhere. And she said, JJ, that was my name before Jesus. That was, right, BC, right? And she said, JJ, I don't need any more of you. I need you to stick to the script. And so I went off stage and died in the corner, right? I was like, oh. The reason why I tell you that is because that is very similar to what was just read to you. Today, we are diving into the concept of sin. Not just sin in general, but but our sin. And what we see in the very beginning pages of Scripture is that God is writing a story and He is writing a script. And we see that our natural desire is to actually forego that and want to star in something ourselves. And so each week we've been walking through this sort of acronym, gospel, to help us out. And we borrowed this from Greg Steer from Dare to Share Ministries, but this is to help you. So the reason why we're doing this series is one of two things. Because if the gospel is all that we have, then we should probably focus and spend a little time on it. And the more we know something, the more we will find it beautiful. But secondly, it's also to equip you that if you're a parent, your kids ask you, co-workers, whatever, hey, what is this good news about Christians? We're using this, God, our sins, paying everyone life. And so last week, we started with the concept of, of God, right? Because in the beginning, God, right? The Bible starts with that. And so we understood the fundamental aspect. The reason why the gospel's good is because it's first about God, And not about us. That's what makes this good. And then this week we're sort of understanding. We're we're doing two our sins. 
But this is how we've been defining the gospel. And we're going to read this together every single week. And we're going to pound one nail to get into your head. But it says this. Throw it up there on the screen as to what the gospel is. Let's read this out loud together. You're in the sermon. Ready? Here we go. The gospel is the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry in word and in deed of his son, Jesus Christ. God our sins paying everyone life. And this week, to understand the concept of our sins, I think there's really two primary errors that we make. The first one is this, is that we study it, and we have Bible studies about it, and I think that's right. We're going to quote some systematic theology here in a minute, and we do have to understand something properly. But I think that we are so sinful that we would love to have another Bible study and understand what sin is than actually repent and turn from our sin. So we're not scientists in a lab just learning for learning's sake, but the other error is is that we make very little of it. Like it's a fib. Ah, just a little story I told. Well, you know, nobody's perfect. So so how are we going to define this if we move forward? Well, Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology puts it this way, and I think this is right. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Pastor Tyler read that first John passage. Sin is lawlessness. But if I could break it down, and the reason why I told you that story is because today, listen, look up here. Today is not this day. Today is not, oh man, I need to send this sermon to old Bill. <laughs> Bill needs to know about sin, right? And it's not nudge your spouse day which that could never go well for you, okay, right, in the sermon. Listen, today is our sin, my sin. And we're not talking about things so much that are out there as we are talking about what lies in here. So what is sin, jelly on the bottom shelf? And this is the big idea today, and it's this. Sin is the self-absorbed desire to reject God's story. And to write your own. That is what I see in this passage. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture because I believe it explains to us and shows us exactly what is wrong in the world. But it doesn't just leave us there, it shows us that that there's a rest of a story. And so, listen, the fruit of sin varies. I mean, that could be drug addiction, um, the abuse of alcohol, uh, being a workaholic, uh, being prideful, being whatever's falling apart in your marriage. The fruit of sin is different, but the root of sin is always the same. And it is the self-absorbed desire to reject and not submit to the story that God is writing and to write our own. So here's what we'll see in the passage to Google Maps where we're going. We're going to see the cause of sin, the consequences of it, and then the cure for sin, okay? So the first thing that we see is this, the cause of sin. So when you back up and look, um, Genesis chapter 2 ends with this beautiful sentence, right? It says, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were both bucky naked, as my little nephew says, right? Bucky naked and not ashamed. And there was oneness and there was goodness with God. And I've heard one theologian say that Genesis 1 and 2 is like listening to a beautiful orchestra. Many, many instruments, many, many parts, but one wall of sound. 
And that's what we see that God is in the beginning and He creates things. And there's this rhythm. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And then Genesis chapter 3 opens and we read these words. Now, when I say the serpent, can we have some fun in church today? Let's read it like I read stories to my kids, okay? I'm going to say the serpent, and I want you to go, dun, dun, dun. Can we do that? Can we have fun? Here we go. Ready? Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any of the trees in the garden? Now, there's a lot going on here. But isn't it interesting that the first thing that the enemy does is he questions the goodness of God and of God's word. I mean, he doesn't come outright and attack it. And some of us have to reconstruct our view of what we're fighting. Ephesians says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and forces and spiritual darkness in the heavenly places. But it is so subtle as to come along and say... Did God really say that's the best design for marriage? Did he? I mean, did God really say that that's how you should handle your money? Did he? And then he distorts it. He said that you should not touch at any of the trees in the garden. Now, when we go back, God told them every tree, everything is yours, one thing's mine. To establish love and choice. That's why you ask someone, will you marry me, right? Or I hope he did. I hope he didn't just suggest it. You know what I mean, right? There's a choice there for the commitment. And we see that God actually said all of the trees are yours. So listen, parents, this is very important for you to understand and teach your kids. God's permission far outweighs God's restriction. God said every tree is yours except this one. And then Eve gets the script a little twisted. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, there's a problem. Eve is adding to God's word. And now, that's what I call legalism. Legalism is being more strict than God, right? Some of you grew up with, don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do. That's tough if you're from Donovan. You know, I'm kidding. <laughs> My wife's from, I'm married. Okay, all right, I can say that. All right, I got a vested interest in that. What I'm saying is, Legalism is being more strict than God. It's adding to his word. So now she's already in the trap. And we see this, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, Now here it is, I'm getting to verse 4 and 5. Now the, woman, now the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. Question, question. Is that a lie? Straight up. That is just a straight up, bold-faced lie. Because God said, I love you. And so don't partake in this. This is a little too much that you can handle. And when you do, the consequences of this are going to be severe. And the enemy first distorted God's word, doubted God's word, and then just outright denied it. And then verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. There's the lie. There's the lie. That is how sin enters into the story that God is writing. And it's very simply this. God's holding out on you. He's not good. So how about you go around God and be your own God? You can be just like him. If you study 
the history of all false religions, there is always at a core and at its being, you will be God-like. You can achieve some higher level of spirituality and you can be your own God. And that's when we reject the story that God is writing and we say, you know what? I want to star in this myself. And so if I could break it down and summarize it, I would say this. The fundamental human problem is that we are naturally born not loving God because we are trying to be God. Now, I'm going to get a little bit deep here, and we're going to go in the theological deep end, so I hope you have your, float, your floaties and your puddle jumper on, okay? Theologians call this original sin. This is the original sin that we inherit in our human nature. Why? Because theologians would say that Adam represented the federal headship of all humanity. That Adam represented the human race. Now, I know what you're saying. Jeez, That ain't really fair. I suffer the consequences of something else that somebody else did. And you know what I would say? You're proving your own sinfulness. You're proving your own pride, saying, there's no way I would have done that. I'm better than Adam. Oh, see? There it is. Do you see how twisted it is? Do you see how deep sin actually is, is that we're actually blinded from it? The Apostle Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation, for who? For all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I get asked all the time, Jason, literal Adam? Really? Really? It's 2018. Have you not seen that one YouTube video going around on Facebook, man? No way, bro. Really believe in one Adam? Well, for as by the one man's disobedience, yes, I do, because Paul did. Let us continue. The many were made sinners. So by the one man's disobedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, some people say that doesn't mean original sin because Paul says many. He doesn't say all. I would say in the very first part of the verse, Paul says all Men have inherited this. And in the second verse, he's emphasizing what he said in the first. Now, the reason why this is difficult to understand is because this goes against our nature and this is very offensive for us. This, what we're in today, our sins, is the offense and the affront of what the gospel is. And so listen, we are not naturally born loving God. As a matter of fact, I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 in your Bible. I want you to turn there. I'm not going to have it on the screen because I want you to use your Bible in church. How crazy would that be if you actually turn the pages of your Bible? And I want you to see this because it is offensive and you know that I'm not making this up. Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says these words. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins... And when she once walked, dead. Now, we got to talk a little bit. Dead. Paul is using a physical analogy to show a spiritual reality. And he's saying, before Christ, you were spiritually dead. Now, question. What can dead people do? Come on, I worked in a funeral home for a couple years. What can they do? Nothing. They can't even dress themselves for their own funeral. You have to dress a dead body in order to present the dead body. 
So if Paul is right, then what can you contribute to your salvation and what do you do? Nothing. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Oh man, you ready for this? This is going to be so politically incorrect. You'll think I was the president or something. Okay, you ready for this? Right? It's fun. We can have fun in church. Just laugh. It's all right, okay? Here's what Paul is saying. There are only two types of people in the world, and that is it. There are those who are sons and daughters of God, and there are those who are sons and daughters of disobedience, and that is it. And here's where our struggle comes in. Our feelings. Our feelings. Because here's what you say. Man, if, that, if that's true then how, how does this bear implications on? Because I know this person and I've experienced things and I love them. I know what God's word says, but I feel like I would argue that that's the brokenness and sinfulness of us rejecting God's story and trying to rewrite it so it's palatable for us. Sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This week I got to go to a hospital and see a just new baby, just fresh out the oven, newborn baby, man. I love that. I love being a pastor. I love those moments. And when I held that baby and I prayed with that family, I first thanked God for birth and the analogy of the new birth that Jesus says in John chapter 3. For if you want to inherit the kingdom, you must be born again. And then we prayed for that baby's salvation because we understand this truth. And I'm sorry, mama, and I know that's your baby, and I know that's your grandbaby, boo-boo, Mimi, or whatever your name is, okay? But listen to me. We all, by nature, are children of wrath. That's not Jason's opinion. That is the Scripture's. And the reason why that's important is two, really. And, And you know this is true if you've ever been around small children, right? Like, how many of you have taught your kids to lie? Anybody? Anybody was like, here's how you get ahead in the world, buddy. You tell a good lie. <laughs> now, you may show that by example, but that's a whole different sermon, okay? Right? Right? And how many of you have taught your kid to do what I call like the liquid man, right? When you tell them to do something, they just, just go nuts, lay down on the floor. It's either the liquid man or like stiff as a board. Like, I'm not going in this high chair right now, man. Right? What's happening? They're rejecting your story, and they're writing their own. And they're saying, I'm not submitting to that. This is what I want to do. And there's two reasons why understanding this concept of original sin is important. The first one is this. Have you ever been to a doctor, and if you felt ill, and you had something serious going on, and it was test after test after test, and the doctors were like, we don't know. That, that fear of leaving and knowing like something's wrong with me, but I don't know what it is. Am I going to die in my sleep? Like doubt, fear, anxiety, and everything creeps in. But then when it goes, we found it, your, your levels are off here, and we're going to supplement, and you're, whew, right? Here's what's great about the scriptures is they don't just tell us what's wrong, but they, they diagnose you. So now you can realize, oh, this is the reason why I act like this in relationships, 
This is the reason why fundamentally, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. It tells me now this is the reason why my heart is pulled in these directions. But secondly, if you understand the concept of original sin, then no one, no one can ever think that they are better than someone else. And listen, I get provoked by this, but if I hear another person talk down and look down on people who are on welfare or aid or anything like that, it is very hard to look down on people who live on welfare when you exist because of God's welfare towards you in Christ. Do you understand? It is, it is offensive to understand that when Timothy McVeigh was hooked up to lethal injection, he quoted Invictus, where he said, I am the captain of my ship. My own fate is in my hands. My head is bloody from the gods, but it is not bound. It is not bound, and I am captain of my own soul. And to know that when I resist and I am self-absorbed, that I am no different than that man. Now listen, all sin is equally damning, but not all sin is equally devastating. Hence, when you blow up a federal building, there's some effects for that. But all sin in the sight of God is equally damning, and we are equally responsible for that. That's why this is offensive. And listen, when you begin to understand the gravity of that... It weighs in on every implication of your life. So the fundamental problem with humanity is that we're naturally born not loving God. But what are the consequences of that? How does this, like, boots on the ground, how does this narrow down in my life? And most theologians believe that the writer of this, Moses, records four areas that show what's affected by this. First and foremost, the consequence is vertical. It's first and foremost, your relationship with God is broken and distorted. Look what happens, verse 7. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths. Verse 8, here it is. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. Isn't that haunting? Before they were, imagine walking and looking at a sunrise with the God who made it. That's how perfect man's relationship with God was. Sin enters in, they rejected his story, and now they they hide from him. And look at what they do. They hid from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Like, have you ever played hide and go seek with a little kid before? They lay in the floor, one, two, like, you can't see me, ah, right? Listen, here's one for your Facebook status. Sin makes you stupid. And you do stupid stuff. Like hide from the creator of trees in trees. They're hiding. They're they're running away from God. And what we'll see in just a moment is that that affects everything else. But look at what God said. Look at God's response. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man. And he said to him, Where are you? It's a loving father pursuing his lost kids, chasing after humanity. That sentence, where are you, is echoed throughout eternity. And I believe for some of you, that's why you came today. That's your word. God is asking you today through his scriptures, where are you? Where are you? 
Are you hiding? Are you running? Are you rejecting responsibility? Are you living in passivity? Where are you? But it's not just vertical. It's also horizontal, right? So it's my relationship with God, and then, I'm sorry, it's uh, internal, my relationship with myself. It's God, and now the relationship with myself is distorted because look in verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the first cover-up ever in history. They're covering themselves. Why? Because of nakedness. Now, you have to understand, in ancient literature, nakedness equals shame, and it equals guilt. So they reject God's story. They write their own. Now the relationship with God is breached, and now the relationship with themselves is breached, and they can't even interact with each other or look at each other because now all they see is guilt and they see shame. You see, if you understand this truth, you will never understand who you are until you know who God is. You will always find your identity in something else until you know rightfully who God is, and then you'll know who you are. This is why some of us just never are going to get involved in community groups. Never going to let people in. Why? Because if I let people in, then I'm vulnerable. And then what if people think that I'm weak? And then what if they realize that that, that thing happened in my life? And then sometimes they're probably going to use that, and they're going to, because, listen, when you live in shame, you wear a mask. Why? Because you think if they know who you really are, they won't love you. So when the relationship gets serious, I'm either going to sabotage it, be distant, hurt them before they hurt me, or I'll end the relationship. Because if someone knows who I really am, then they really won't love me. And so now they think that they're independent. And it's funny because when they become independent, they become anxious Timothy Keller says it this way. See, the one thing we don't want to believe is that we are utterly dependent on God. We want to think we need God occasionally, or maybe not at all. But in our heart of hearts, we know we're utterly dependent on God. And therefore, we are in denial about who we really are. That's where the shame comes from. And that's where the guilt comes from. And that's where this lack of ease with being able to admit who we are comes from. That's why we always attach. If you ever listen to yourself, introduce yourself to someone. Men, most of the time, introduce themselves with, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and I do blank. A woman is much more thoughtful. And, you know, they come up behind and say, Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm married to... Right? If you're proud of that fact, some of you might hide that. I'm just teasing, right? Why? Identity. Who, who am I in this? So now with sin, my relationship with God is broken. We are distant. The relationship with myself is broken. I don't even know myself now, and I'm attaching all these other things. But it's also horizontal. It's my relationship with others and how I interact. You ready for this conversation? This is something like out of a soap opera. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Shame keeps us from approaching God. Verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree in which I commanded you not to eat? Ready for this, guys? Ready? Verse 12 is not good for us, bro. Here it goes. The man said... The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit. Oh, what happened, Adam? Remember chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Adam's naming all the animals. Giraffe, cow, dog, cat, 
God's like, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make a helper fit for you. First surgery takes place. He goes to sleep, wakes up. Isha, he breaks out in the first Barry Manilow, Bruno Mars song, right? He sings a song to Eve. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. Like, can you imagine that moment? He's like, dog, cat, bird, giraffe, hello, right? (laughs) But now what's happened? Blame, blame, right? She gave me the fruit. Now, verse 13, then the Lord God turned to the woman. What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and he made me do it. You see what's happening? This ball is rolling down. And now a good definition of sin would also be um, you before or me, you dying in order so I can advance. It's throwing somebody else under the bus so you can advance in life. It's, not, it's caring about yourself more than other people. And, and I hear Genesis chapter 3 all the time, right? Well, the reason why we're in here today is because he don't ever, he don't ever do that. And then he's all like, well, you're never over here. And then we never and all that changed back when. And, it's, and then society, right? Get on Twitter sometime. The crowd mentality. What's wrong with the world is now we got these problems and the trees are dying. And now we got to do all the, and it's just blame and it's blame. And here's the reason why. We are so driven to see somebody else's sin because it is much much easier for me to tell you how you were wrong than for me to self-reflect upon my own sin. So Adam doesn't say, well, I was extremely passive and I was standing right next to her when she was talking to Satan. Hey guys, here's some good in marriage advice. If your wife's talking to the devil, interrupt. Jeez, right? Goodness gracious, man. And so now it's a blame game that we're passing on. So it's vertical, it's internal, and it's horizontal. But the last thing is this, is that it's eternal. It's our relationship with life. Look what God says to Adam in verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death. What do we get when we write our own story? Death, every time. The next chapter is showing Adam and Eve's children. And the writer organizes it in such a way to show that Cain kills Abel, meaning all we can produce is death. That's it. Everything that is solely dependent upon us will die and crumble. And now that's why Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. That's why no matter the age... No matter the circumstance, when you stand at that graveside and that casket is lowered into the ground, something's not right. Because we don't want anything to end. We know it's going to end, but there's a desire in us that we wish so much that it wouldn't. Dust. God says that you're, um, in my book, you're about as um, the equivalent of dust. Irma Bombeck was an author who wrote many articles for women and many books. She says this and wrote in an article entitled Dirt. She says, you know my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house, there's dirt. There's dirt in the bathroom, dirt on the plates in the kitchen, dirt in the rug. So I work every day to get rid of the dirt. And by the time I get to the end of the house, I look at the beginning of the house and it's dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all of these years of struggling and trying to clean dirt, do you know what I get? 
six feet of dirt. (laughs) She's using humor to teach us a principle. That the reality is, is no matter how much we fight and we resist, that is our lot. That death comes for us. One author said death is the great equalizer in our life. One pastor said, if you're a believer and you're a Christian, this life is as close to hell as you'll ever get. But if you're a non-believer and you don't love Jesus, this life is as close to heaven as you'll ever get. That's why we struggle with these things. This is the consequence that we see within our life. It literally affects everything vertical, horizontal, internal, eternal. That's everything that sin shatters in God's story. Because we rejected it. But he doesn't leave us there. The cure is also here as well. The cure for sin. I want you to look in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's a lot going on here. The first thing is this. If you go back to biology class, God tells the serpent that the woman's seed will beat him. Now, if you understand biology and how the reproduction system works, women don't carry seed, they carry the egg. The men carry the seed and fertilize. So why would God say offspring or seed? Why would he say that? This is called the proto-evangelium, which they call the first gospel. Here, God is prophesying the virgin birth of Jesus Christ because he is saying through the lineage of Adam and Eve... My seed, my offspring will come. And it's a pronoun. He shall bruise. You shall strike him. And it's this idea that God is already saying, listen, this is how gracious our God is. That we've rejected the story. We're writing ourselves in. Everything is broken. The cosmos is literally fractured. Romans chapter 8 says creation writhes and groans because of sin. And God is already, listen, writing himself into the story again. But look at how serious it gets at the very last verse. Verse 24. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back into the tree of life. Now listen, cherubim are like a warrior angel. They sat on the Ark of the Covenant on either side where the Ten Commandments were. Anytime cherubim are mentioned, it's almost in a warfare-like. So this cherubim has a flaming sword that waves back and forth so to symbolize that man is now separated from the presence of God and the only way back into the presence of God is to go under the sword. The cherubim marked the people of Israel. When God tells Moses about the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, there was the holiest of holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat. No one was allowed to go in there except the great high priest once a year, and they tied a rope around his foot to make sure he wasn't lying and living in sin because if he was, he would drop dead and then have to drag his body out. 
But when God is telling Moses to construct this, he says these words, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine linen and blue and purple scarlet yarns, and you shall make them with the cherubim skillfully worked into them. As a reminder, listen, I'm going somewhere. Don't, don't, don't miss this. As a reminder to the people of God that you are separated from my presence and you cannot come back in. And every time you see those cherubim with the flaming swords, you are recognized that our relationship is breached and it's broken and you can only get so close. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen him as the only son of the begotten of the father. And Jesus enters into the picture. There's a number of things that happen at Jesus' crucifixion. But at the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus dies, it says this, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. Symbolizing this, that when Jesus died upon the cross, John's gospel teaches that the Roman centurion soldier grabbed a spear and pierced him in his side and the scriptures teach that water and blood flowed out because it pierced the heart sack so literally when that moment happened and Jesus absorbed the sword and the very wrath of God the temple curtain that had the flaming sword upon it tore from top to bottom not bottom from top top to bottom to symbolize that God has made his way to man man has not made his way to God and this separates Christianity from all other religions in the world. Why? Because all other religions say you can do X, Y, and Z and make it up the mountain. But Christianity says the only cure, the only cure for a self-absorbed humanity is a self-sacrificing God. A God that takes it himself. This changes now everything. This changes how we interact with our spouses. You have a choice in your marriage. You either bear the sword on your spouse or you absorb it and you take it and you show the grace because that grace changes everything. We can either bear the sword on someone else or we can absorb it and we can take it and we can reflect the very image of God. Do you understand this magnitude of what sin is? How serious is sin? Look to the cross where God killed his own son. But how much does God love sinners? Look to the same cross because he killed his own son. As the band comes and leads us in a time of response, we're going to close in a specific way today. A couple of weeks ago, we took a little family vacation and we went to Branson, to Silver Dollar City. Or as one of my friends says, steal your dollar city, which I think that's a great analogy for Branson. But when you get there, for for our kids, you have to go to this thing called a measuring station. And you go every day, and you get a bracelet. And that bracelet tells you what you can ride and what you can't ride. And so every one of my kids stood up there, like tried to make themselves a little taller, right? And it says you get a list as to what you can ride and what you can't. This is a picture of Roman standing by one of the rides that says he can ride, but... There were some that said, you can't ride this ride. And so if you don't measure up, another way you can say it is, you've sinned. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there were some areas of the park that my kids did not have access to. Unless you had somebody else with you. Somebody else who measured up 
then Roman could ride every ride as long as I was with him. You see, he didn't qualify in and of himself. He qualified because someone was present who measured up. Here's all I'm trying to tell you, Westside. It's all about Jesus. Jesus does not take lightly our sin. And so as before we come forward, there are a few application questions. The first one is this, do you take it lightly? Is it not a big deal to you? Not really interested in that? Oh my, I fear for your soul. But the second error is this, do you wallow in it? Do you live in it? Is it who you are? Is it defines you and this, all that? Because the third question, do you see the way out? And the way out is through Jesus. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God so we can measure up. Before we come and partake in communion, you have an insert in your bulletin. It is Psalm 51, 1 through 12. It is David's prayer of confession, confessing his sin. We will read this together out loud. Stand right where you're at. And we will read this out loud and let this be the tone before we come and partake in the table. Psalm 51, 1 through 12. Lift your voice. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity And in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let these bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. God, have mercy upon us. And hear our prayers. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Come forward and partake in the table as you feel led today.